A quote by Joseph Campbell, The Power of Myth. People say that what we're all seeking is a meaning for life. I don't think that's what we're really seeking. I think that what we're really seeking is an experience of being alive. So that our life experiences on the purely physical plane will have resonance with our own innermost being and reality. So we can actually feel the rapture of being alive. End quote. Listeners, this is my interpretation of the ancient myth and tale of the Green Knight. More significantly, this is my interpretation of the recent cinematic movie, The Green Knight, just coming out only a week ago. This interpretation is my own. Everybody interprets myths differently depending on who they are, what their mission is in life. But this will be in the context of masculinity, puberty, and coming into manhood. Enjoy. Sir Gawain and the Green Knight When the Gawain poet was writing in the 14th century, the Arthurian legend has been told and retold over and over and the legends themselves of idealism of the court were increasingly being treated in a debased fashion. The poem suggests the decadence of the Arthurian tradition. This reflects social changes of the 14th century England. The aristocratic ideals were kept alive through tournaments and the founding of chivalric orders. But social changes caused the Gawain poet both to praise and to call into question the past of its aristocratic ideals." End quote. I believe thoroughly and fully that each and every single myth is a symbolic and psychic representation of the human mind, of the human conscious experience, stemming from the unconscious. And I have had absolutely profound experiences with studying myth because I realized that once you study myth and you study these stories more deeply, you begin to fully understand yourself, at least from the perspective of the bigger picture. You understand that what you are currently experiencing is nothing new. It's cyclic. We have the hero's journey incorporated by Joseph Campbell. We have the call to adventure, the threshold guardians, the threshold mentor, the abyss, transformation, atonement, and the return. And each and every single one of our lives, we have this cycle, but most of us are unaware that this is happening to us. So like I said, this is my interpretation of the movie. I will give my complete and total honest interpretations and also my criticisms. Now, I saw this movie last night and I'm going to attempt to recall it the best that I possibly can um, instead of seeing it twice and going in the second time and, and taking notes. But spoiler alert, obviously, I'm going to spoil literally the entire movie for you if you haven't seen it yet. I highly suggest that you go see it and come back and listen to this episode. 
So first we have our hero and like every good heroic journey, we have our individual who is needing to embark on a quest for whatever reason. Maybe it was called upon him, maybe him to it. Maybe he stumbled upon it. But in this case, in the Green Knight story, we have an individual who is looking to seek out his tale. He wants stories to be told. He looks at everyone else around him and he sees that all these other knights, they have stories to tell. tell. But when King Arthur asks him to tell his, he says that he has none. And the queen says, yet. And often I found this to be a case within most of our lives. We feel like we don't have tales yet to be told, but we can also add that yet at the end. And that gives us deep inspiration and hope knowing that though we may not have any experiences yet worth telling, but most of the time we do, there's always that potential for action. During the round table, when King Arthur is about to give his Christmas speech, we see back at the a flashback between a witch, which is essentially the protagonist's mother. From an Arthurian perspective, this mother's name is Morgan. But in this case, we're just going to call her a witch because that's essentially what she is. She's an enchantress. Mostly irrelevant outside of the beginning and a couple symbols, but it's important that we note her. So within this story, basically the Green Knight comes and he challenges the round table. He challenges uh, a knight, all the knights to a game. All the knights refuse for whatever reasons. Maybe they're scared. They don't want to be embarrassed. But Sir Gawain accepts the challenge of the Green Knight because he has no tales yet to be told. So once he gets this quest, he's left kind of dumbstruck. He's left in a state of complete and utter reluctance. But he knows what he has to do. He has to embark upon this quest. And he has a year to do so. This is a very difficult time for most of us within our lives when we understand that we have to leave the conscious confines of our home, of our residence, of our essentially what can be the known world in exchange for the unknown world. We know that as young men and women, we have to trade comfort for discomfort because in discomfort comes growth. So there our hero, Sir Gawain, understands that he has to leave. And currently, he's living a life of, I would say, decadence, apathy, lust, temptation, and distraction from his true potential. Though, he knows that there's something else out there. He knows that he has potential, and he knows that he must become a knight. He knows that he must prove himself not only to the round table to King Arthur, but also to prove himself to himself. And often we get trapped within these moments within our lives where we're trapped within the comfy confines of our home. And we know that only we will be tested once we leave that realm, once we go on that adventure. So then our hero, the protagonist, Sir Gawain, leaves on this quest after deep reluctance. But before he leaves we notice a kind of mythological motif, 
a pattern, a trend that we see amongst not only ourselves in our lives, but also in all these myths spanning back thousands of years. And you get this call to an adventure, whether it's an intuition, an inkling, a quest, you get something that draws you out of the conscious world. It wants to pull you out. But before you go, you're met by something called threshold guardians. And what these threshold guardians often are, are they are individuals, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, friends, girlfriends, who want to keep you from separating from the known world. Now, there may be good reasons for this within our own lives. Maybe they've been on the outside and they've had terrible experiences and they were forced to come back. Maybe they completed that quest, but only at great sacrifice. But more often than not, their withholding of you, their reluctance for you to embark on your journey, them trying to convince you not to go, usually comes from one of two things. It is fear. They are afraid for you for good reasons. They're your mother and they don't want to see you go out into the world and get your ass kicked and fight battles and wars and to get taken advantage of because ultimately the war the world can be a very brutal and harsh place especially in the time frame of this this tale they know that there's risk involved so they're afraid for you for good reason they have the best of intentions but then at the same time you have other individuals these are usually our friends and our acquaintances or other people within our tribes who they don't want to see you and go out and leave the confines of the wall because they don't want to they don't want to see you accomplish their mission because if you accomplish that mission if you obtain the honor and glory of whatever it is you're trying to embark upon whether it's wealth or success or just a transformation what you do is essentially you project upon them their greatest insecurities they look within you and they see this individual is doing what i couldn't therefore i must stop him and many individuals are like this we see these in our lives we have multiple types of threshold guardians and in this case in this movie the threshold guardians were a couple things it was his girlfriend who tries to lure back him with the idea of marriage but not just marriage more specifically sex you know get more to this later but basically she tries to keep him within the ordinary world, the known world, with pleasure, with lust. And of course, like a good mother always does, the mother does the same. She tries to keep him from going, but ultimately he knows that he must embark upon this quest. He has to. You know, in the movie, he accepted it and he cut off the knight's head, ultimately sealing the deal. So he leaves the walls. He accepts the quest and the first thing that he meets is what it's bandits essentially this is the first challenge and there's a really interesting dialogue between him and this bandit and they kind of just talk about you know he talks about the battle and how he has brothers out here somewhere he's probably lying but what this really this battlefield I think symbologically represents is the threshold essentially the beginning of the transformation it's that's the line drawn in the sand it's a warning and he meets the bandits and of course when we leave the world that we know for the world that we don't we're met with tests 
and were met with enemies and even allies. But in this case, he met enemies. Now, when we leave from the ordinary world into the special world, we're so naive and we're so lost and we're so willing to trust. We don't know how to defend ourselves because we lack experience and we get taken advantage of. We get stolen from, we get robbed, we get injured, we get hurt. And what these bandits represent is essentially that. It's his first trial, which he bombs. He fails totally and completely. He gets literally tied up. And at this point, you're looking at the hero in the movie and you're thinking, God, you're such a loser. You literally got wrapped up by three kids. And then on top of that, he gets his shield broken and he gets his horse stolen and also the weapon taken from him, the Green Knight's Axe. And after he loses all of his money and he loses his shield, which I'm pretty sure was gifted to him either by King Arthur or his mother, I can't remember, but at a certain point, the shattering of the shield represents an awakening. You realize that the new world that you're in is not all sunshine and rainbows, that you can't have the constant protection of your mother, mother being symbolic of your actual mother, but also the realm of comfort, the ordinary known world. Now, something important to note is that before the hero leaves on the journey, he's given a green sash. And within this green sash is runes, runes of protection. And the mother tells the hero that he has to wear this sash. And if he does, no harm will come to him. And that he's able to return home in safety. Now, what this sash essentially represents is, of course, the mother's world. It's the ordinary world. It's a, t a temptation to abandon the quest, but it's essentially his umbilical cord, psychic umbilical cord to his mother. The green sash is a representation of boyhood, of being a child, being immature. So he gets everything taken from him within the first 35 minutes of the movie. And this happens to us when we embark on new journeys. We get our asses completely handed to us. And it's very easy for a lot of people at this point, if they even get past the threshold, if they even leave the world of the known, it's very easy for a lot of us to quit and to abandon ship and want to go back home because we, we look at that world and we say, God damn, it sucks. I've been gone for only a month. Uh, a week, a year, whatever it is, and I lost all my money. I I'm without any friends. I'm completely disorientated and I'm confused. And then we see this choice. You have the choice to sit there and you can wallow and you could say, stay entrapped and you can die. Or you can wiggle your way to the sword that was gifted to you by the king, the king archetype, whether it's your father or a literal king in this case, or some type of like internal strength. So we see this within the movie when you have this beautiful camera pan that pans across the entire forest. 
And then you see time kind of elapse and it goes back to the hero and he's dead. Be still wrapped up. He didn't try. He quit. And you're thinking to yourself, what happened? Is he dead? No, he's not dead. What it's showing you is a choice. And it goes back to the hero and he's alive. And he saw essentially a projection of the future. He said that if I sit here and I stay wrapped up, if I don't try to get out of this situation, if I don't give it max freaking effort, I'm going to sit here and die. And a lot of times, a lot of times when we get stuck in these situations, when we get wrapped up by either our ourselves or by other people, ourselves being our distractions, our addictions, our lusts, our weaknesses, when we get wrapped up by it, it can often strangulate us and choke us and leave us there for dead if we allow it to. We see this in all sorts of people. We see this in the, the show My 600 Pound Life or various drug addiction shows or even friends or family of us where we watch them kind of downward spiral. But more often than not, when you struggle, when you toil, I'm talking to true toil, when you can make it to that king sword and you could free yourself to continue upon your journey, that in and of itself is a test, but a test stemming from a choice. So the hero loses his horse and the boy takes off with it. He says, I'm going to complete this quest by myself. Now, we have to put a pin in this because the horse and the boy are a symbol of something greater than just a villain. But I'll get back to that at the end of this episode. It's very, very important. So moving forward, now the hero meets a woman. And and don't get too distracted if I'm getting my series of events kind of confused here. I think what's most important is the interpretations. So the hero has his first challenge and he gets glimpses and hints of a mentor along the way. And that is the Fox. But we have to come back to this later because he denies the Fox, which is essentially a guiding light. It's essentially somebody who's willing to help him. But his ego is so invested in keeping up this persona that I can do this by myself. I don't need help. And oftentimes when we cross the threshold, we're met with individuals who can be mentors to us. But whether it's through our own ego or our own fake, I want to say, persona of self-reliance, we deny these mentors. We deny their help because we think that we can do it on our own. He eventually accepts the help of the fox or the mentor, but only after he encounters his first abyss, his revelation, his death and rebirth. Now, this comes through the symbology of water, a religious and a metaphysical, mythological motif that we see often portrayed within stories and movies and in ourselves is the idea of subversion or being immersed or buried or being entrapped within something. In this case, within the Green Knights, it's a dive within a murky pond after he receives a side quest from that ghostly girl. Now his job is to go within the pond and to dive deep within it, deeper than he ever possibly imagined in order to retrieve something. 
This is called the revelation. This is the abyss. And what happens is that our hero is forced to dive deep into a pond in hopes that he will retrieve something. Not necessarily just the skull, but something more. He even asks the woman, if I dive into this abyss, if I go into this state of pain and turmoil and ultimate danger, what will I get out of it? She replies, why would you ask such a thing? And he goes, why would I ask such a thing? And thus we come upon periods of our lives when we meet the abyss head on. This is called the time of ashes or a catabyst or a depression or financial distress or suicidal tendencies or loss. And man can go through long periods of this abyss within his life, this down and out, as Robert Bly would call it. When you dive so deep into a state of turmoil that it seems like there's absolutely no way out, that you're just trapped there. But in this abyss, in this state, and it is periodic, it's temporary if we allow it to be, within this state, of the most absolute pain, blindness, adhesion, confusion, we have an opportunity to dive to the bottom of a pond and receive some type of treasure, a boon, or a revelation, a way forward. And I've come to realize that when we reach these states of our greatest ordeals, that is when we are made and supposed to pay attention the most. Because like Joseph Campbell says, in his representation of the abyss, the dragon deep within its lair always sits upon a mound of treasure. That dragon can be whatever it is in our lives that is causing us the most pain, the most distress. But upon within that lair, that dragon, that problem that we have, that addiction sits upon gold. It sits upon an answer. It sits upon a wealth that is obtainable if we choose to defeat the dragon. This is a myth mythological motif that's been taking place for thousands upon thousands of years. The knight is forced to fight the dragon for whatever reason. Once he defeats the dragon, he can move on with his adventure, with his quest. And this is through the movie represented, represented beautifully through a dive deeper into the abyss and he retrieves the skull and I like this scene more specifically when he is diving and the abyss is or the pond which was previously thought to be to him only a couple feet deep the directing and the cutting is beautiful in this aspect because they lead you to believe that the pond that the abyss is only several feet deep in actuality it's way freaking deeper than he originally anticipated, anticipated it to be. And like I said, in life, you go through in life you go through periods of turmoil that is way deeper than you have previously anticipated, and you're forced to dive deeper and deeper and deeper until you get to this point to where you got to realize there's something there that you have to grab onto. There's something there that you're missing, that you have to realize and you have to obtain. And only what's once you obtain that boon, that gift, at the bottom. Only once you slay that dragon 
for all of his wealth can you ascend back upwards. But the journey's not over yet. You still cross the threshold. You're still in that special world. You're, you're still in that world of the unconscious. So then he goes back up to the surface and he talks to the girl and he accomplishes this task. He retrieves the boon. And with this boon, he's able to move forward on his quest, though there's a piece of him now within the abyss. The abyss always takes a piece of man with him. And we trade something with the darkness. And it becomes a part of us to a certain extent. And we have to figure out how to integrate this newfound darkness within ourselves. We've seen something that those in the known world, they won't understand. They can't see. They've never experienced that before. They've never experienced something so profound, so awe-inspiring, so horrifying. And when you see something like that, it takes a piece of you. You're trading it. So the hero moves forward and he gets his axe back and he finds caves. He finds shelter, perceived shelter, but shelter nonetheless. And in life, we get to these pit stops for a month or a year where we think we're making progress and we try to start a fire. We say, I'm here now and I'm going to try to provide myself with warmth with security. And if you notice throughout the entire movie, the hero is never able to start a fire after he thoroughly leaves the realm of the known. I'm talking about once he crosses that battlefield, that threshold, completely and totally unable to start a fire. And within masculine psychology, fire is often represented as strength, courage, passion, and mastery but our hero not yet a man is unable to start a fire he's unable to ignite that fire within his belly and he sits there and he toils and he crashes rocks together and he hits it and he hits it no ignition not even a spark he becomes exhausted he becomes tired once again he's provided with the opportunity to quit but right before we're about to quit in life right before we want to call it done right before we want to go back to the realm of the known once again we're forced to pay attention and we're forced to look around and our hero does this and what does he see he sees that mentor that he has previously denied and at first he takes a rock and he throws it at it he says I don't need your help get out of here I know what I'm doing and continues to toil and unable to start a fire. And in life, once again, we often have the opportunities to seek out a mentor or somebody that can assist us. It's our Merlins. It's our guiding light. It's our internal gift or that flicker of a God, whatever it is. And finally, he realizes He needs help. He needs help. There's nothing wrong with help. There's nothing wrong with asking for help from certain family members or friends or individuals 
who know a thing or two about a thing or two. Whether it's that craft or that mastery or that journey, at a certain point, you gotta stop throwing rocks at the fox. You gotta stop throwing rocks at the mentor. The lone wolf is a dead one. And our hero realizes this. And once he accepts that he's vulnerable, once he accepts that he's not as good as he thought he was, he invites the fox into the cave. And at that point, he befriends the fox. He has a mentor. He has a guide. He sees now where he's supposed to go and he follows this fox. Now, he doesn't follow this fox blindly. At least not completely, but he follows it nonetheless. But he still can't start the fire. So he leaves the cave. And of course, he leaves the cave and he encounters another trial, which is falling down the hill. And he loses the axe, or at least temporarily, once again. And I think that the axe is a symbol of a token. It is a symbol of essentially our key to the Holy Grail, to the Grail Castle. It is a key to the answers. And I think the axe is a symbolic representation of youth and openness and humbleness. He never uses it to hurt anyone. He never uses it to attack anyone. He only carries it. And he understands that in order to get the answer that he needs from the Green Knight, that he has to bring the axe to the Green Knight himself. It's kind of like in the old Parsifal myth when Parsifal asks the Grail or the King, who does the Grail serve? The Grail serves the Grail King. If Odin hung himself from Yggdrasil for nine nights, I think that Yggdrasil can be a symbolic representation of the Green Knight's axe. So then we have a very interesting scene that I have not been fully able to dissect yet, but it's the scene with the giants. I don't know what this is, but what I think it is, is another form of awe. It is another form of shock. It is another form of amazement. And I think what the hero is realizing here, and I think what we realize within ourselves is a couple of things. One, we realize that to a certain extent, we're way smaller than we thought we were. Within our world, we felt so big. We felt so powerful because we knew our way around the house. We knew our way around that job. And then all of a sudden, we leave into the unknown world and we're surrounded by giants. We have an understanding of kings and heroes. And we're left in the sense of awe. I think the giants are, to a certain extent, a representation of the cosmos, of the universe, God, awe, whatever you want to call it destiny but he has this moment of just complete and total humility where he sees these giants 
And often within life, we see these giants in these stores, stories or biographies or tales or mythologies where we look at these individuals who accomplished great and total tasks and we have an opportunity to be shadowed by these giants or to stand on their shoulders. And I think what that ultimately represents is a couple of those things. Now, upon our journey, when we've reached and passed the abyss, when we've traded ourselves for a boon at the bottom of the abyss, we are met with distractions along the way. We're met with points within our lives when we're still on that hero's journey, but we think that we've sought out security. We think that we found a place that we can rest and we relax. And often we get so comfortable within these places that the perception of time is fleeting. We forget how long we're there and we forget why we're on that quest. Why are we on that journey? What were we previously trying to accomplish that within this home or within this false sense of security, we've lost. And we see this perfectly represented represented by what I call the comfort home. And he seeks shelter with that individual, which is like essentially the Jarl or the owner of the home with his daughter. And what these two individuals represent is one, the female, it was a representation of his loyalty to his girlfriend back home, his love back home. I think what she is, is the representation of lust and addiction and pleasure and apathy. And I think what the male represents is a mirror to the hero. He asks the mirror, he asks the hero a very simple question. Oh, you simply go on this quest and you obtain honor and that's it. You're done. And then the hero realizes, I, I don't, I, yes, that is. And then he essentially is acting like the archetype of the fool within the king's court. He is able to present the hero with silliness, with aspects of the king that nobody else can tell the king or else they'll get beheaded. But this individual is able to act as a reflection, deep introspection to the hero, where he kind of realizes, I don't know why I'm actually, I thought it was for honor, but maybe it was for more than that or less than that. I'm not sure. I've, I've found myself lost in my thoughts. And often within life, we go on these quests where we meet individuals who talk to us or, you know, whether it's your father, your grandpa, or that mentor, or just a random stranger who they kind of reality check you. And they kind of remind you of either what's important in life, or they ask you certain questions that to maybe them themselves is very simple, but to you, it's profound. Now, this individual, this man represents a couple of things. Another one being a final test of temptation at the end. I would admit a degenerate one and kind of a cringy one at the end when he gives him a kiss goodbye. But 
I digress a little bit. The female, there's a couple very, very important scenes within this house of comfort when she takes his photograph and the photograph is inverted and it looks as if he is already a king, as if he won, as if he accomplished his journey and he is a success, but this is pseudo, this is fake. He hasn't accomplished shit. The only thing that he's accomplished is getting himself very, very lost, very, very tired, and very, very beaten. But she takes the picture nonetheless, and it's inverted. And it's inverted for a reason, a very important symbolic reason, which I'll hit. But he's met within this home another test, a test of this woman. And women have a really weird way of testing men. Women have a very strange way of giving men reality checks and a really shocking way of waking a man up. They don't do this intentionally, at least not always, but they can. Because what a woman wants to see in her man or in the men within her tribe or community is she wants to see them resist her temptations, temptations of life and apathy and laziness. These are called shit tests, something I've always talked about. And she'll test you. And she tests him by wanting to have him remove his sash, or I think she takes it from him and he asks for it back. He says, no, I want my sash back or I want it back. Or what he's really saying is, I still have that con deep connection to my mother and her womb, her safety, that comfort. And she says, do you want it? He says, I want it. And then he reaches this state of orgasm, obviously. And he's met with great shame in what he did. He's met with great shame. And at a point in our lives, we realize that we've fallen into a place of great comfort and degeneracy and apathy and overall distraction, we've fallen into these places. And it's only when we're met sometimes with great levels of shame that we realize that we have to wake up, that we got to get out of there. Shame can be interpreted in a couple of ways. You can either ignore it, which sometimes there's a time and a place where you should ignore shame, or you can use that to propel you forward. In this case, our hero realizes that he's been in this place for way too long. He's way too distracted from his quest. And there the, the Jarl says, there that king of the home says that the citadel, the answers in which you seek is only down the road, but seek shelter for a while. Stay with us, hunt with us, eat with us. But the hero has to realize that he has to continue his journey. And he leaves this castle of comfort with shame. This can be incorporated in a couple of ways. He's shame. He feels shame because he realizes that he still is a child, that he's not a man yet. He feels shame because he let himself get so distracted on this quest. He feels ashamed because he realizes that he has grown so weak and he has not yet accomplished the things that he was set out to accomplish. So he flees this castle of comfort. He flees it. And in life, we have to do the same for ourselves. You get caught up in addictions. You get caught up in drugs, drinking, 
alcohol, you get caught up in toxic relationships, you get caught up in points within your lives on your quest where you realize that you got to move forward, you got to drive on, you got to go, go, go. You can't lose momentum because if you lose momentum and if you lose traction, more often than not, people will try to take advantage of you and they'll try to hold you down. So he flees and then of course you have the last trial. A lot of people are interpreting the king's kiss as this and that, but what I think it is, is it's just the last test of temptation. I think that's ultimately what it is. Maybe not. I think it was kind of cringe. I think it was it was obviously gay, um, but maybe there's a deeper representation to it. But I, what I think is the director is appealing to two types of people. People who just want to see awe and shock and great cinema and weird things and entertaining things. They want to be entertained. So that's, I think, where the King's Kiss came in. Um, and then you have the mythological analyzers like myself who can interpret that as something else. Um, but I think it's ultimately one last test of temptation. And then, guess what? He leaves the house of comfort. He leaves and he's able to get back his mentor. He is able to get back his guiding light. And this happens to us in times of you know, great stagnation when we're able to leave our houses of comfort again and get our mentors back. We're able to find the way once more. It hasn't been completely lost. There's still a chance that we can accomplish this quest within our lives. And only when we make a choice to move forward are we able to receive back our mentor, our fox. So, he decides that he must continue on his journey and this Jarl sends him down the road. But he tries to convince him not to because he's it's dangerous. Of course it's dangerous. Life is dangerous. And he gets to the point where he goes down the river and everything gets a little bit more foggy. He descends further into another abyss, of course. It's where the green knight lies. That's where the answers are. And he hops on the boat, or at least he's about to. And then something very, very interesting happens with the fox. So if we know and if we understand that the fox is a representation of a guiding light, a mentor, grandfather, a master within its realm that is willing to help us on our journey, at a certain point, the master has to realize that his trainee or his pupil has to surpass him and has to move forward. A good mentor knows this and understands this. So the fox tests him one last time. And he speaks for the first time. The fox speaks, but not in any tone past. It wasn't masculine. It wasn't inherently feminine, but it was spiritual. It was his mother's vocal projections coming out through the fox. And it was a test. And what he was supposed to do was not listen to the fox, not listen to that mentor, but supposed to deny it. And he does. And he goes further down the boat. Let that boat be a symbol for whatever it is 
you think. But he finally accomplished one of one of his many tests that he's failed many times. And he finally finds the Citadel. And he finds the Green Knight sitting there in sleep and in slumber, just staring at him. Eyes closed and our hero sits there and he awaits. And he waits for a very, very long time. And I think this is a great symbolic representation of patience. And it's a great representation of just sitting there and appreciating how far you've come. And he sits there for what seems like at least a whole day or at least a couple days. And finally, we see a glimmer in the Green Knight's eyes. Now, this is a perfect place to pause and say... And ask, answer the question of, but what does the Green Knight represent? What does the Green Knight represent? Well, you could say it represents masculinity. You could say it means coming into manhood. You could say that the Green Knight represents the earth, which represents a divine power. It represents life. It represents higher purpose. It represents meaning, freshness, vitality. And this scares us sometimes, this idea that we are the ones denying life, that we are the ones that are not moving forward, that it's nobody else's fault but ourselves, that the reason why that the Green Knight doesn't wake up and meet us or even challenge us in the first place is because we're not ready. Are you able to see the truth? And finally, the Green Knight wakes up and he asks the boy, the boy, if he's ready. Here's the thing. The boy thinks he's ready. The boy thinks he's ready. And in life, we often think that we're ready for many things. But whether we haven't acquired enough knowledge, we're too immature, we're too addicted, we're unable to say yes to the Green Knight's Axe. We're unable to accomplish the task. But the Green Knight, our hero rather, takes a knee on the ground. The first strike comes down and the Green Knight hesitates. Hesitation. That's something we see within our own lives. I've written about it in the past, the demon of hesitation. And he overcomes, he fakes confidence. He thinks that if he just fakes confidence, if he just sits here and if he just kneels on the ground, if he submits only temporarily, maybe then he'll gain enough courage to say yes to the axe. Once again, the Green Knight says, are you ready? And he says, yes. The second blow comes down. He hesitates once again. He asks questions. He tries to distract the Green Knight. He tries to find a rationale for denying the quest. He rationalizes his failures. And it's very easy for him to do this. And there's brief moments within his eyes where he realizes, I could just walk away from this right now. I could just walk away. I could just go back home and I could refuse this quest. I'm not ready. And he says he's not ready on the third blow. I'm not ready. And he runs away. And he denies the Green Knight's axe. He denies his potential. 
he denies his destiny. And in life, on paths that we're on, we often see glimpses of our destiny. We often see glimpses of our fate and we look at it in the eyes and it looks back on us and we see nothing but our own cowardice. We see a reflection and we don't like what we see on that reflection. We see fear in ourselves. We see cowardice. We see weakness. So we, re- we return. We deny our potential. We deny the quest. And our hero does this. He goes back home. What is the first thing that he does? What is the first thing that he does when he goes back home? Is that he gets comforted by his mother. He goes back to what he knows. He goes back to comfort. He goes back to security. He is not a man. He is immature. He has failed his initiation. He has failed the quest. What's the second thing he does? He keeps on the sash, right? He has sex with his girlfriend. Going back. When he gets his head, when he's about to get his head cut off, what does he not remove? He does not remove the mother's sash. He does not remove his connection to his mother. That realm of comfort. That safety. He doesn't remove it. And at a certain point in a man's life, the man has to realize that in order to become a man, he has to realize he's not a baby anymore. He's not a child. He's not a young boy. Mothers, in all their wisdom and all their love, will try to keep their sons back because out there is dangerous and they're right. And they have every reason in the world to be right. But... Very interestingly enough, and this is very Freudian in nature, and I'm not very much a fan of this, but I'll play their game. There is a confusing distinction between the mother and the girlfriend. They became one and the same. Now, what's very, very interesting is that when a man has an unhealthy connection to his mother, he's still a a mommy's boy. He's a 29-year-old male without a father who still lives with his mom his mom makes him all his food his mom chases away his girlfriends and his mom is ultimately still treating him like a child when a when a son still has an unhealthy and a, a, a unrealistic connection to the realm of safety to his mother he often if ever gets a girlfriend it looks exactly similar to his mother he moves from one mother to the next we see this in a lot of men who haven't fully developed into psychic maturity, they have not fully left the mother's world into the father's realm, they haven't received that proper initiation to manhood, they find a mother and their girlfriend. This is a strange concept. Strange. Freudian. I'm not necessarily a fan of Freud, but I believe that's to be true. When a man has an unhealthy psychic development, and something's missing within his mind when he's not properly harnessing his archetypes his king archetype more specifically he simply finds a woman that's like his mother now is that a bad thing in and of itself what if your mom's the sweetest woman ever what if she's super nice that's not a bad thing If you're a man that's unable to realize that you can't stay in mommy's house for the rest of your life, it's not a bad thing. Sweet women are sweet women. Nice women are nice women. You should seek them out. But don't let them hold you back because they will. This is what they do. It's not their fault. It's nature. They want to keep you safe. They love you. So he finally finds the citadel. He runs away. He goes back home. 
and he's having sex with his girlfriend. And I find this very, very interesting, very, very fascinating. But a reach, a reach I'll admit, but fascinating nonetheless. At peak orgasm, at that very top moment when he's having sex with his girlfriend, he is peak pleasure, he's euphoric, he's in an, a state of ecstasy. And he lets go. And at a moment at that peak, and this is very, very true for men who are at that orgasmic state, at the top of that seventh second, you're the clearest you've ever been. You realize that this girl you're having sex with, or you're not wearing a condom, or whatever it is, that you're doing something wrong, that you're cheating on your wife or your girlfriend, or that you're that you're not living up to your full potential. There's something about that seventh second at the top of that orgasm that you realize that you're making a mistake and you have a glimpse into the future and that's what happens to him. He realizes that he allowed his girlfriend to reel him back in with sex. He goes back home to the realm of the unknown without completing the quest and he sees a projection of himself as he stares off into the wall and he sees his future. He sees a projection of King Arthur giving him Excalibur and you go through this amazing sequence of events where essentially what he turns into, very interesting, is a king. Yeah, he turns into a king. He's the nephew of King Arthur after all. And what you see is essentially an inversion. He's a king, but he's the shadow king. He's the tyrant. He's the child king. He is not ready to become a king. And if he only would have accepted that quest... And if he only would have taken up the Green Knight's challenge and got his head cut, then he would have been a proper integration of the King Archetype. But what we've noticed in mythologies and motifs that often, like Robert Moore Gillette says in his book, King Warrior, Magician, Lover, that when the King Archetype is properly unharnessed, when the King is corrupted, when he's weak, when he's tainted, when he's distracted, that all the realm will fall into chaos. The crops will die the cattle will die, the realm will fall into warfare and conflict, and that it does, right? We've seen this with our presidents, we've seen this with kings, we've seen this in history, that when a leader of any given group falls to his own weaknesses, when he falls to a shadow version of himself, the entire realm falls with him because he is the center. And he sees the projection of what is yet to come. He sees his wife being sold for mere coins. He sees his son dying in battle because of a war that he started because of his weakness, a war that was probably avoidable. We see the realm fall to chaos. His life is in shambles. He's a king, yes, but he's a weak one because he failed the quest. The most important part of this entire story is two things. One, that projection is an inversion of his life if he denied the quest. In life, we can often use our minds, we can use our rationale to see what happens if we deny our quests, if we say no. That's a scary thought, isn't it? But most of us aren't able to tell ourselves that amount of truth. It's hard, it's difficult. And I think that 
It's very, very important for us to look at these archetypes within ourselves. And I highly suggest that you guys read the book, King, Warrior, Magician, Lover. You have to ask yourself, are you harnessing your powers correctly? Are you harnessing them properly? You have to tell yourself the truth. You have to, have to ask yourself the right questions. You'd be shocked at the answers you get sometimes. And I know that throughout the movie, you go through about 10 minutes of this revelation or this projection of what could come. And it gets confusing because you start to wonder, is he still in a dream? Did, is this really happening? What, what is going on? It's, I knew the whole time that it was a dream because there's a scene where the picture that was previously inverted upside down that was originally taken at his weakest state when it was originally taken upside down now it shows it behind him but it's right side up which means that his world is upside down he's inverted he is a negative version of himself that's how I knew that that was a dream now the most important part of the entire movie the one thing that was holding him back was that green sash that false sense of protection that his mother has given him. And it's only when he severs this psychic connection to his mother, to the realm of the known. It's only when he pulls it out of him, and I love the representation of it, he realizes that he's bleeding. He feels a pain. He feels an inkling, essentially, that I'm wrong. Something's off. I've made a mistake. And when he pulls that cord that umbilical cord, he wakes up and he's under the Green Knight's axe and he says that he's ready. And ready he was. And at a point in our lives, what this psychic connection is, is not to our mother in and of itself. It's to what the mother provides us. It's pattern recognition, it's comfort, it's safety. It's a life free of conflict and strife. And it's nice. Part of us all want that. But it's not... <laughs> After a certain extent, that is not where growth happens. Growth happens when you sever that connection to comfort. And you realize that everything that you always needed for strength lied within not what you have known but rather what you could be and he pulls it out and he wakes up and he completes his quest now one last and final important note and something that I find very very interesting and I think what a lot of interpreters probably missed is that there is that bandit and I told you I would come back to this there is that bandit at the end who is seen stumbling. And the horse is a symbolic representation of a catalyst. It is nothing more than a mode of transportation for this hero's quest. In life, we find different modes of transportation to help us accomplish our quest. It's something to help us get to one point or another. It could take us back home or it could take us forward. And the hero sees that horse and he knows that if I just simply got on this horse, I could go back home or I could go to the Green Knight. Moving forward to the kid, the bandit at the end, he's staggering. He's seen in a daze, like he's seen something he wasn't supposed to. 
he met the Green Knight and he saw a projection of his future and he was not ready to receive the answers that he got. This is essentially what happens in the Parsifal myth, the Arthurian Parsifal myth, when the young Parsifal gets a touch of the grail and he's left dazed and confused. The grail, or the green knight, being a symbol of inner peace and enlightenment, the answers to the world. And I know what it feels like to be that stumbling bandit because I've been him. I've touched the grail. I've met the green knight long before I was ready. I was not ready for those answers. And I talked about that in a previous episode called Accidental Enlightenment. It's about my experience with the green knight. It's about my experience with the holy grail and how I was the stumbling bandit. But ultimately, what happened is that this bandit got to the green knight. He got to his answers. He got to where he wanted to be, not through proper integration of his masculine strengths and psyches and passing trials and making himself a stronger, better person. He got there by lying and cheating and stealing. That's one way to finish the quest, but it is not the right way. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope that you enjoyed my interpretation of the Green Knight. I hope that this inspires within you your own journey and your own successes and a way forward. A couple references. I think that you guys should look into the book He, Masculine Psychology. A book called King, Warrior, Magician, Lover by Robert Moore Gillette. And I highly suggest you check out Iron John, Robert Bly. People don't understand that myths are a way to guide you forward. Because when the world is dark, you can always come back to the idea that there's a way out and up. If you're still listening to this episode, I do have a few caveats to the movie in and of itself. Though The Green Knight is a fantastic myth, the movie does have a few problems. One of my biggest problems is the cast. I believe that the actor was a fantastic actor. I've loved him in all of his previous movies. To a certain extent, I even loved him in this one. But this is an Arthurian tale. And I think what really pulled the audience out of the story, if anybody was really paying attention was that the protagonist, that King Gawain, is an Indian man in this. Obviously, I don't have any problems with Indians themselves, but to replace Sir Gawain with a man from India doesn't really make sense. And for the sake of the story, and if the directors and the writers wanted to maintain accuracy to the myth, casting an Indian man for a European role made absolutely no sense to me. 
at all. It was very distracting. Uh, it was seemed more of like a Hollywood cope rather than wanting to maintain integrity to the actual myth and its origination. For Hollywood to care so much about liberal ideologies, like one of their most favorite tropes being that of cultural appropriation, to them to ironically culturally appropriate a movie that they were filming didn't make any sense to me. And then I think another main distracting feature on top of it being miscasted was that Sir Gawain, the actor himself, I don't even know his name, was far too old. Far too old. Because he should have been probably around, I don't know, I would say around 18 or 19, 20 years old. He should have been. But instead, the actor looks like he's in his late 20s or even like his mid-30s. I think a better casting choice for this movie probably would have been uh, what is his name? Um, the King. The King cast. Forgive me, guys. Just pulled this out right here. Uh, Timothy Chalamet Hall. I don't know if that's how you say his name. I think he would have been really good. He's the guy that's playing in Dune. Or you have um, Dean Charles Chapman, who also plays in 1917, and he also plays a role in The King too. The point is, is that the main character casting, he should not have been Indian. He should have been European. This is an Arthurian tale after all. Uh, and secondly, he was far too old. So it was very, very distracting. But other than that, the movie is very good. It has good symbolic, symbolic representation. And to a very solid extent, I would say that it remains pretty loyal to the myth. And I want to see more of these movies in the future.